Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're moving into a place where populism rules, and you can see that in the US and Britain. You can see it in places like Hungary and Poland. You can see at least in those latter two, it's actually right-wing authoritarian populism. So everywhere there's, there's some phenomenon that's occurring in Western democracies that is leading to a deterioration in economic performance. Well, hello, everyone. We're nearly there. We're nearly there to Christmas. I can almost smell it. Uh, it's Catherine Murphy, and you're, of course, on Australian Politics Live. And I'm delighted to say my guest in the podcast this week is the, the well, I said when he, when he came into the office, the artist formerly known as Martin Parkinson, but I think he is still Martin Parkinson. I sort of hope I am. <laughs> I was when I looked in the mirror this morning. He, he looks he looks slightly disconcerted. Anyway, Dr. Martin Parkinson is one of Australia's best known public servants. He has retired from public life only recently. Most latterly, he was the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, but uh, I suspect a lot of listeners will also remember him as a Secretary of the Treasury Department. And so the conversation I want to have with him today is quite broad-ranging. It'll cover a couple of subjects that he and I are minutely interested in, and we'll see where we go on the reflection of the modern bureaucracy and how it's facing up to the challenges that it finds itself in. So without further ado, I want to start, Martin, with reform and what might be happening with reform. Now, in your final farewell speech when you left PMNC, you said, today there's no consensus on what reform looks like. So it's quite a sobering thought. It's a simple locution, but it's quite a sobering thought. So is that the problem no consensus, because it seems to me that in Australia we used to be pretty good at reform. We used to just barrel on in, and it seems to me probably really for the best part of a decade we have lost the art of being able to do complicated reforms. So is it a lack of consensus that's the problem, or is it more complicated? I think it's actually more complicated. If you go back to you know the, the golden era when of reform when we were both starting out, we had a situation where in the early 80s, Australia had gone through a decade. It had been bookended by two recessions, stagflation in the middle, so high unemployment, stagnant growth, high inflation. And you had a sense in the community that this couldn't continue, that the model was broken and we had to do something. 
As well as that, you had a set of, and then I'm channeling Paul Kelly on this point, you had a set of political leaders who were actually prepared to put the national interest ahead of their party partisan interest because they knew that we faced a national crisis. And by that, I mean, you know, I've said this uh, at other times, but on the conservative side, you know, John Howard, John Hyde, people like that. On the Labor side, Keating, Hawke, but other people, Cook, Dawkins, Button, so on. Mm. And the, the third thing is that you had a real sense in the economics profession about what the priorities should be. And they were about getting the market to send signals more clearly, so getting basically the public sector out of directing business what to do, opening the place up to trade, deregulating, beginning to sort of put some greater freedom into the wage-fixing system, so on. So there are a whole variety of things where both sides of politics basically agreed on the general thrust, even if the fine level of detail wasn't, um, wasn't totally agreed. Whereas now, I think we have none of those conditions. And by that, I mean we don't have a consensus amongst our political leaders on the challenges that we face and the importance of reform. We don't have a community that actually is listening to Lee Kuan Yew tell us we're on the way to being the poor white trash of mm. Asia mm. or Paul Keating telling us that we're about to become, become a banana, banana republic. republic. Yeah. Rather, we've got a political class now that, and I'm not being critical of any individual, but I'm just saying broadly, they want to pretend that really complex problems are really simple. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the last decade, decade and a half, is an erosion of trust or, or confidence. And, and I think I'm going to use the two interchangeably, mm -hmm. even though they do mean they do have different, different, things. different yeah. connotations. Yeah. Th there's been erosion of confidence in government's ability to deliver. And in part, it's because they've presented the political class on both sides have presented really wicked problems as something that they can fix rather than levelling with the Australian public and saying, well, actually, this one's, we might never be able to fix it. We're going to have a go. And we've still got this gotcha mentality. So when you do have a go and it doesn't work, rather than saying, well, we tried that, doesn't work, let's try something else, you basically get slammed for incompetence, you know, sort of failure of leadership and the like. Mm. And then you overlay that with the, the sort of lack of consensus in the economics profession about what are the areas which we should be prioritising. So, for example, should we be prioritising trying to regulate big tech or should we be trying to prioritise doing things differently with Indigenous Australians or climate change for mm. that matter? Mm. And every one of these is a legitimate question that they all take you in very different directions. And I don't think the economics profession here or overseas has got a got clarity about what it thinks needs to be done. Mm. And we'll get to the economy and the, the challenge of the economy a little bit later in the conversation. You raised climate change. I mean, in my view, obviously, everybody listening to this podcast and who reads me regularly know I'm very fixated on this issue, but I regard that as the, the biggest policy failure of the last decade, mm. like a profound policy failure. Mm. Now, you were right in the middle of it like the whole way from the bureaucratic, well, you, you viewed it through the bureaucratic lens, I suppose. I viewed it externally and you viewed it from another platform. What the hell happened? <laughs> I wish I knew. It, it's, worth, it's worth listeners remembering that in 2007, 
we went into the election with both sides promising the introduction of emissions trading scheme. And uh, the difference was John Howard said no later than 2012 and Kevin Rudd decided to one-up him and said no later than 2011. And, you know, I I had led the secretariat of the Shergold Review, which convinced Howard to um, support an emissions trading scheme. And Prime Minister Howard had then said to me, look, I want you to go and start designing it. Well, with the change of government, we were still designing John Howard's emissions trading yeah. scheme, right? I mean, the, the broad parameters of the CPRS or even the subsequently what became known as the carbon tax, even though it wasn't. It was even a, though it wasn't. It was not a carbon tax. Thank you. Um, but uh, the broad parameters of those really have their antecedents in the Shergold Review. Mm. So they were. So when John Howard came out in 2000, it was either late 2008 or early 2009, after Kevin Rudd had been trumpeting how much progress he had made, John Howard pointed out quite rightly that actually Mr Rudd is simply implementing my, my emissions trading scheme mm. because mm. the broad parameters were not the sort of things that are going to change. Mm. You know, if you're going to have emissions trading scheme and you want to have a long run forward price so that people know how to make investment decisions, you're going to end up with something that looks like the CPRS and not anything that looked like the European scheme. Yes. The European scheme was so fundamentally flawed and we could see that from day one that the trick for us was to work out how to create that forward price and the way to think about it was we just had to create a bond market Mm. effectively. Mm. And then the, the real tricky stuff came, how did we manage the transition for the emissions-intensive trade exposed yes. industries. And like. But all of that got caught up in partly in the GFC. So we had a whole pile of business people who were supportive of the direction of the CPRS who all of a sudden found that they were leading firms that were in existential crisis. Do you uh, think, just I'll stop you there, do you hmm. think it was GFC-related the way the business the, the, the business about phase? Do you think that was because, as you say, right, that they woke up one day in the middle of an, an well, the biggest uh, disruption since the Great Depression economically? You don't think it was partisan? You don't think it was because you think it was related to business conditions rather than the fact that we went from a Liberal government wanting to implement it to a Labor government wanting to implement it? I think... There's a bit of truth to both, but I think the GFC is the more important mm, issue because mm. in the, you know, the, the CEOs that I know well or knew well during that time, you know, they, they literally went from this might not be what we would really want, but we understand it's got to be done, it's got to be part of the transition pathway and the like, to actually I'm not sure whether my business is going to survive. Mm. And you, know, you could see that their bandwidth to deal with other things other than saving their businesses was diminished dramatically. I think it was also, though, to be fair, for some of them there was a motivation prior to the 2007 election to say we'd rather have the Howard government implement an emissions Mm -hmm. trading scheme because we think that will be a more sensible one than what we might get out of Labor. Whereas in actual fact, you know, if you look at what came out, it was not dissimilar. It was not dissimilar at all. Mm. You know, there might have been a few minor tweaks around the edges. But at the end of the day, what happened here was civil war within the coalition. And, you know, you had people like Barnaby Joyce, you know, sort of basically being very, very dismissive in Senate estimates of bureaucrats with lines like, so if all this turns out to be nonsense, are you going to give me my money back? Well, and the response to that is, well, 
to pay your house insurance. <laughs> if your house doesn't burn down, we don't give you back your house insurance. And you know, there's this sort of nonsense that you keep hearing from people, even today, that somehow this is all part of a gigantic conspiracy. Mm. Yeah. Well, if it is, it's a conspiracy that's been running for 170 years. <laughs> well, yes, and, and has some actual physical manifestations now. Mm. So, as just a, just before though, just yep. before we leave the the that because you you focused in on the in a sense on the that side of politics and the business community, it, it was just I mean the behaviour of the of the Greens was truly appalling. I mean until until the Greens wake up to the fact that we have to separate the design of the mechanism from the size of the target, get the mechanism in place, and then we can dial a target up or down depending on where the community is and depending why, on what the, what the world wants to do. Why do you... <laughs> Sorry, this is the eternal why. This is going to end up the, the, an extended therapy session between you and me, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, but seriously, though, right, you... I can't explain it. Can you explain it? No. No, look, the thing is the Greens never wanted to never wanted to see anything succeed. If you're a party of protest, you, you don't want actually to take away your key protest platform. And maybe I'm being a cynic, but think think about what happened, right? When they after the twenty ten election, when they did come to the party and we had the multi party yes, um, design team, the yeah. committee. Yeah. Well, look what they did. They actually agreed to more support for the generators, more support for the coal sector and that than was anything in the CPRS. Mm. The target didn't change. Of course, they say, though, Martin, they say, well, we got the CEFC and we got ARENA and uh, and that wasn't in the original scheme. Therefore, this is a much greener scheme. I think that's complete nonsense. We could have easily had a CFC and an ARENA. And in fact, I think if we look back... Arena may well have already been. Um, was it in, in the first plan. one? I couldn't remember. Wasn't, no, I don't think it's in the first one. But I think that somewhere all in there, we were already actually planning for an arena type entity. Right. So, but are you asking me to, to it, cast my memory back? No, 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 years no, 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 no. no. Well, well you no. and I, you yeah. and I. Um, but do you think the difference between sinking the CPRS for the Greens, though, and engaging in the multi-party committee and signing off eventually on that scheme, do you think implicitly that was a recognition by them that they made a mistake? I mean, I've never heard anyone from the Greens acknowledge. That mistake, I, or apologise. I've never but heard any. I'm just curious whether yeah. do you th- do you think that maybe it's implicitly it's a recognition that they did the wrong thing? Oh, look, I I can't see inside their minds, but I have never heard anybody from the Greens apologise for what they've done, and what what have let's be blunt about it. What have they done? Twelve years on, the targets the targets are no more ambitious. If anything, they're they're watered down from where we should have been. Yeah, you know, and and that's not the current government's fault. It was Tony Abbott. We've <laughs> we've missed a decade oh. of both mitigation action and adaptation action. You know, and I think firms, I think the really interesting thing now is firms are beginning to work out that they can't afford to wait for government. Mm. Um, yeah, that and, is definitely underway and fascinating, actually. Yeah. And it's because they, they recognise there are now uh, they, they might not use this language, but there are really four, to- four sorts of risks. There's mitigation risk, which is governments around the world eventually wake up and act and act really quickly. And so you strand a whole pile of assets. And so they take big yeah, financial they take losses. Big hits. Yep. Or there's adaptation risk, 
which is governments continue to move too slowly. Temperature goes well above two degrees. We get much more uh, in the way of um, climate-induced national, natural disasters. And so you've, you lose physical assets that way. Now, both of those things, in my view, are going to happen because I cannot see governments here or overseas mm. moving fast enough to avoid two degrees. Nevertheless, worry about one and a half. You know, and just to be really blunt about it, the International Energy Agency, which is hardly a bunch of crazy um, climate-believing climate, um, leftists, says that we're on track for 2.7 to 3.5 degrees, even if countries do what they've committed to do for Paris and they're actually not delivering what they've committed no, well, to we've do had a, We've had a disaster again. Well, disaster is probably slightly hysterical, but it's only a bit hysterical. We've had another mess in Madrid. Yeah. But, just over the last couple of days. Yeah. And with Australia at the centre of it, Australia insisting on the carryover credits was part of the reason Article 6 sunk in mm. Madrid. And everybody, the French, the French environment minister told the FT that Australia wanted to sink the Paris Agreement. That was his view. So, you know, it, things aren't improving rapidly. Well, I think one of the things that has been missing from the Australian debate is is to remember that if you if you use the carryovers, then at the end of 2030, the gap that you've then got to close as you go into whatever comes next yeah, is actual that, much, yeah, that yeah. much bigger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yes, we've abated more than we committed to do. And in a, in a carbon budget sense for the time being, that's great. We're ahead of the game. But if we get out to 2030 and we've done 26 to 28, and let's say the rest of the world then says, okay, we're going for um, net zero by 2050, yeah. we're going to be starting much, yeah. much further away yeah. than we would be if we'd been forced to abate without the carryover credits. Well, we're going to end up in that scenario that you and others always warned about through many, many papers and and processes that if you defer, the co- if you defer abatement, you increase the costs of abatement. Yeah. We're going to hit that curve and we're going to hit it really hard, I think. We, we are. But if we just come back to those sort of four areas of risk I was talking about. So we've got mitigation risk, we've got adaptation risk. Firms can see that. But the things they're really also focused on is reputational risk. Mm. So they're now having to deal with activist shareholders. Yes. And, yep. you know, wait till it's, you know, California pension funds or Ontario teachers or even our own super funds start to basically put some weight on firms about this and you'll get even bigger Mm. concerns. But the other one is liability risk. So yes, Exxon got off in this court case in the US, but it is only a matter of time before, because people will jurisdiction shop, that the activist groups will find some judge who that's going to find in their favour. Once that you know, sort of tsunami is unleashed. It, who knows where it ends up? Now, it's sort of implicit in our mutual therapy session, but was the climate failure the worst of it for you? Oh, you mean over my career? Yes. Uh, yeah, it was actually. Because um, can I ask it this way? Can I ask the question this way, right? And I'm not I'm not inviting you to personalise a response to this because I imagine you and Ken Henry are great mates, right? Or well, you've, we are. You've, you've worked, yeah. You've worked, yeah we, worked. we are. We're very close friends. Exactly. Right. So I'm not I'm not inviting you to reflect negatively on Ken. I just want to make an observation. Now, Ken Henry has periodically, in very erudite fashion, entered the public debate after his public service career to lament 
failures of policy, and I completely understand why. Right? That is that is a, these are the conversations like the ones we're having now are conversations that need to happen in this country more often. Right? So I'm not criticising him for it, but I don't know. But perhaps because he's he has a, he has a sort of remove. He has a. It's sort of like it's almost like it's something that he has spectated upon abstractly. There's not there's not a lot of blood in the reflections, is what I'm trying to say. So I'm asking you, human to human, across a couple of microphones, how bad was this for you being inside this process that was not working? And it's something that you devoted well, what, fifteen years of your career to trying to? No, actually, two thousand and six to be. I went back to treasury in twenty eleven. So. It was it was awful on a number of fronts. A, we were so close. You know, it's only one vote, yep. and the Greens could have delivered it. So, if if I have a visceral dislike of the Greens that's showing, yes, <laughs> I'm absolutely guilty. The second thing about it, though, was there were hundreds of people who had worked, you know, in a way like in a natural disaster. People just dropped everything, threw themselves into it. This was in Treasury, it was in PM&C, it was in you know, climate change, it was all over the place. And and ministers, yeah. you know, people like Penny Wong, just put her heart and soul into it. And then the other thing, though, that was awful about all that was, well, f- first of all, we failed by one vote. Then we had to dismantle a lot of the things that we'd already created, like mm. the regulator. Mm. So you had to sort of find jobs for people or lay them off. And then the the third thing, though, that came in, in amongst all of this, remember, is the disaster that was the household insulation program, yes. which, you know, during all of this, it was moved out of the Department of Environment because we'd had four young Australians tragically die. Mm. Yeah, terrible. Um, and it was just awful. And it was moved across to, to my department. And Martin Bowles, who subsequently went on to become Secretary of Immigration and then later of Health, Martin and I had many, many sleepless nights because we just inherited this massive disaster where four people have been killed and potentially tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of houses around the country could have had a potential source of electrocution in their roof. Mm. And so that whole period was just... Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Mm. We'll, again, we'll get to the economy in, the, in a minute, but I think I'll actually, given we've, we've sort of touched down really on, on the public service right at the minute, I just mm-hmm. want to ask you a couple of questions about that uh, now from your post, post-career vantage point. A lot of my public service friends say frank and fearless advice is dead in the Australian public service. What do you think? Um, I don't agree with that. And if they're saying that, the question I'd be asking them is, well, why are they not providing that advice? I can only speak on what I've done and what Treasury did under me, climate change did under me, and Prime Minister and Cabinet did. And we in no way pulled our punches. We were we were as as focused as ever on trying to understand what government's objectives were and working with them about whether these were the best way to frame it and then giving them advice on what policies would work and what wouldn't. Do you think you lost your job because of frank and fearless advice? Because you did lose your job? There was a there was a period that you know I'm sure you and I mm. may not love to linger on or reflect on where you did lose your job. 
as as the secretary of a department and then you later return to PMNC, do you think you lost your job because you gave frank and fearless advice? It's a good question, actually. I don't know. I, I've I've always been, um, I've always assumed that Mr. Abbott had some debts, that political debts that needed to be paid. And one way of doing that was expunging anybody or anything that had any association with climate change. Mm. But remember, it wasn't just that. The Australia Century, sorry, Australia in the Asian Century white paper, yep. you can't find that anywhere now. Uh, these things have all just been expunged. Um, does it not exist? Oh, no, it does. It's been archived away so that, so I, that you I can't find I haven't gone looking for things. it recently, but yeah. anyway, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I hadn't ever had any real engagement with him. So there was no – I'd never given him any advice. Yes. So there was no personal relationship there. And I never had any sense that there was any personal antipathy. Because remember, I was told in September – 2013, that my services weren't required, yeah. but could I set up the Murray review into yes. the banking system, the Harper review into competition policy, Tony Shepard's National Commission of Audit, and could I deliver the budget? Yes. Well, you Because you, you were there for, what, about six months when no, you were 15. in the transit? Oh, my God, was it that yeah. long? I, I didn't go until the end of December 2014. And the reason for that is, you know, Mr. Abbott, asked me in about March 2014, he said, look, you know, if I'd, know, if I'd known then what I know now, we would have not been in this situation. And uh, What did and, he mean, if I'd known then what I know now? Well, he'd, he'd worked with me for six months. So he'd presumably, at that stage, decided, well, you know, perhaps I didn't deserve to be, to be told lined that up, my... Lined up against the wall and shot yeah. in daylight, yes. Right. Um, but anyway, that's a that's so that's a ma- that's a matter for him and for history. But I stayed. He, so he he said, but you will stay to finish G twenty. And as as you know, my wife. So the, the week after I was told my services weren't required, Mr. Abbott appointed my wife as his um, Sherpa, Sherpa, which is his personal mm. representative, mm. and her job was to corral all twenty countries and get deliver the whole policy agenda for the G20. Mm. So sort of frank and possibly frank and fearless advice as in you were too closely identified with a policy agenda to advance climate action. So possibly possibly in an abstract way but not in a not in a visceral way. Yeah, not in a visceral way. I think that's right. Um, mm. I, I, think, I think it's A, I was associated with the issue and B, I was... Uh, I'd been quite public in talking about yes. the challenges. Yeah, yeah. Not, uh, and there's always a very important distinction between talking about what the issues are that have to be addressed and advocating a particular policy that a government or an opposition might have lined up with. No, of course. And, well, and, it, uh, it goes to look, if, if, if people weren't watching Martin during this period, allow me to give him a character reference. There was no partisan behaviour. It was it was basically explanation of a complex policy. That was your job. And as we've alluded to earlier in this conversation, it was bipartisan policy until it wasn't. That's so, right. So anyway, now you set up the Saudi review yep. also before you left and that was released by the government last week. Now, why did Thursday. you- Thursday. Thursday. Now, why did you set that up? I had come to the view that the Australian Public Service, which is one of the great public services of the world, right? There's no question that if you look at our track record or even our current performance, we we are one of the best you'll find. 
But what I was worrying about was I could see disruption all around me and uh, impacting the political class. So you've seen it yourself, you know, the the death of the traditional media Mm. model. Written a little book about it. The rise of social media, which allows, you know, sort of groups to come together instantly bound only by their opposition to something, not not a positive. um, Often not. Often not a positive message. Mm. So the political class was being disrupted. The media was being disrupted. Everywhere you look, business was being disrupted. And the community has got used to Amazon-type levels of service. Yeah. And when I looked at the public service, I kept coming to the view that too many of our colleagues, too many of my colleagues, believed that disruption was something that was happening to other people. Mm-hmm. And that while there was change underway, it wasn't sufficiently rapid. And so I'd been mulling this for quite some time. In fact, I, I spoke to Prime Minister Turnbull when I first came back in 2016, but then, you know, with the outcome of the 2016 election, mm. the aftermath of that, he didn't have the he didn't have the sort of political focus to, or didn't have the political capital to be able to yes. to push that at the time. Well, so we to do a number it. of things. Yes, yeah. So mm. we we parked that for the time being, but I I just became more and more convinced that we need an external stimulus, an external set of eyes that says, "Yep, you're great, but." Past performance is no guarantee of future performance. What will the place need to look like in 10, 20 years' time? Mm. And I wanted us to get uh, get our skates on on that. And, and the report delivers some recommendations on that front, on that, you know, investment investment in capacity. You know, Professions sort of, model, which yes. is one thing I've been very keen on. Yeah, you know, so there's lots of, there's lots of inter- interesting recommendations. But I want to ask you about a couple of things. The Prime Minister sort of uh, squared off really against the bureaucracy when he's when he, in in a sort of to my mind slightly antagonistic way he has framed this sort of broader public sector reform conversation as one of congestion busting in the bureaucracy now you stand at the other end of the project congestion busting does that sort of implied criticism seem reasonable to you look i have long been a fan of trying to streamline the public service. And that would be simplifying structures. It would be shrinking number of departments and it would be greater clarity in what we're really doing. And this goes back to my point earlier about focus on the things that we can actually yep. do, yep. not pretend that we can solve do problems everything. that we can't. Yeah, And my working relationship with the Prime Minister over the last 12 months in particular has just been Excellent. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly respectful. He has always wanted to know my views. We've talked about policy issues from from the scratch, so right through policy development through to implementation. I worry, though, that he, he's got a very clear view of the Westminster system, which is quite subtle and nuanced in the way he talks about it. And I often think that other people pick up his language without recognising the subtlety and the nuance. So mm. if you if you mm. look at what he says, he is very clear that the public service has got a role in policy development and helping government and ministers work up policy options, doing the research, and he, he's always talking about the importance of these things being based on data and evidence. But if you look at others, when they pick this language up, it becomes much more a we'll do the thinking, you'll do the doing yes. mindset, yes. which we have seen before. 
we saw at the the very end of the Howard era. Mm. And mm. it's but it's sort of like we do the thinking, you do the doing. Look, but, can, but that's not the prime minister. No, 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 no. no. I'm being really, you know, really you've clear made that clear. That. You've mm. made that clear. But let me pick up your locution, right? We do the thinking, you do mm. the doing. It's problematic in this sense, isn't it? That you know the public sector has a store of memory about previous approaches. Mm. You know what has or hasn't been tried in the past. Yeah. The success or otherwise of that. And I think actually talking to politicians, as I do for a living, <laughs> there there is sometimes a misunderstanding on the part of the political class that this is seen as pushback yeah, often it, it is. by the political class. I, right? I know I know where you're going, and right? I agree entirely. It's sort of yeah. You notice this too. Like I I noticed, for example, very much so at the beginning of the Rudd era, yeah. when the new same thing again. Well, it's mm. sort of like some cautionary tales that were being thrown up around the bureaucracy about the speed of Kevin Rudd's agenda mm. or the complexity of it or whatever else were interpreted, I think, by some of the, those Labor folks at the time. And they'd been out of government for 11 years and some of them had never been in government yeah. as obstruction. And as a former public servant myself, granted a very, very tiny, not at all competent or influential public servant, but I, I would say to them, and I still say it to Liberals today, the way you're hearing it I don't think is actually the way it is. But, you know, is there some way of resolving this tension? So I think you have spot on. I think partly what gets interpreted as pushback is really saying, okay, there's nothing new under the sun here, folks. We've been through this before. Let us, We can help you by explaining what's worked and what hasn't worked and where where it hasn't worked, why it's failed. And then we can work with you to sort of go down that pathway. But in fact, what's interpreted is no. Yes. Uh, and there's not no at all. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, process can sometimes be used as an excuse. And some people definitely do use process as an excuse because they don't want to do something. But most of the time, process is there essentially to stop you getting into trouble. You know, it's there to help ministers to protect ministers, and the more you the the more you focus on getting rid of process, the more you run the risk of putting yourself in an indefensible position if you're a minister. And I think part of the challenge we've got, though, and this is again, this is not this is not about either side of politics, but if I look back over an almost forty year career. The thing that is striking to me is how ill-prepared ministers are to become ministers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and by that, I'm not being critical of them as individuals, but mm. I'd frame it this way. No business in Australia, no organisation in Australia is going to put somebody into a senior role if they haven't already got experience or they haven't been, haven't been trained or they haven't got some attributes ready to allow them to do that. What's missing in our system now, I think, because the complexity has changed, the complexity of the system has changed, and also our politicians come from a much narrower background, mm. and I'll, I'll come back to that, is there's a real need for training programs to be put in place. And by that, I'm not, I'm not being at all pejorative, but, it, but it's actually exposing people. So if you think about it, we used to send politicians uh, um, on international study tours. They'd go with um, other 
other politicians from other parties. They would build relationships. Yep. They would learn about the world. And they also would come into government or go- come into parliament with a broader set of life experiences. Now they're coming out of university where they've played student politics and you know the whole line about student politics is why is it so bitter and intense? It's because the stakes are so minuscule. Mm, yeah. But they're learning. They're learning a particular type of behaviours. They then parlay that into a role in electorate office or a junior advisor's job, and then they parlay that into a senior job, and then they get pre-selection. And so they've, they've come with a much narrower set of skills, mm-hmm. and then they come into parliament, and in response partly to populism, but partly also to public complaint, things that were painted as junkets but were actually part of their training programs have been abolished. So as as a former very senior politician said to me, if you work hard, you can learn the economic side from the backbench and you can learn some things around social policy. But you're not going to learn very much at all around foreign policy and you'll learn nothing at all about national security and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And yet we ask people when they get made ministers to take on these awesome responsibilities and we've not provided any support for them. And their officers don't often have the skill set that will allow them to to do that. And picking up on offices, because one of the recommendations of the review that that the government rejected was that there be a code of conduct surrounding ministerial advisors because, you know, there's been a debate for folks listening who don't necessarily follow public sector debates. There has been quite a debate really over the last probably decade or so about the role of ministerial advisors, that, that they're quite powerful people. They direct public servants sometimes. Well, they, they, they have no yes, legal I, authority to direct public I knew, servants. And, I knew and you'd you, leap at that. Yeah, and you'll always find as a secretary that many advisors do not understand the Westminster system. They do not understand that they have no authority in their own right and they try and get you to do things that on which there's no legal basis. Well, exactly. And, and which... you've got to basically explain to them. And if you go back to my point about process before, if you just took what they wanted to do and went and did it, the principal, the minister, would be in deep, deep trouble. Mm. So not not all, I mean, and not even a majority, but you get, you get people like this and you get them on both sides of politics. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, I think implicit in your answer is that it would have been a nice idea to have a code of conduct around ministerial advisors, both, of, well, uh, possibly as an instrument of restraint for the bad apples that you've pointed to, but also just as a means of education about what what is okay, what is not okay, here's the line, don't step over the line. So I think almost... I think the vast majority of people who go into parliament or go into ministerial offices are going in trying to do the right thing. And so I wouldn't see a code of conduct or training for them as as in any way a negative for them. It would actually be about helping them do their job better mm-hmm. and, and positioning them much better. So which, is what, why, so... which is why you see, right, I mean, think about probably, you know, one of the best chiefs of staff you or I would have seen in our working life, Arthur Sinodinos. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Arthur just knew. He yeah. was a professional public servant and he had done other things and he just absolutely understood what the role of the minister was, what the role of the advisor was, what the role of the public service was. Mm. And he's scrupulous 
about it. And then when he went to become a minister, he was absolutely fantastic. Mm. I mean, unfortunately, he, he became ill, and so we never really got a chance to see him at his best. But, um, yeah, but uh, he, he's an outstanding human being in you know, on all those dimensions. Yeah, I agree. Mm. And so why do you think the government, and again, I'm not personalising this because you've made it clear you've got a good relationship with Scott Morrison, but I'm. why do you think the government said no? Look, I, I don't know. The Thody review hadn't been handed down when I Oh, left. yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying give me the inside running. I'm, oh, not, I'm yeah. saying, like, it, why would a government say no in oh, your I, experience oh, to that recommendation? Because, because I think... There are too many people who, well, I, I, I think there's a, a reasonable number of people in the government who took the attitude that this was a Malcolm Turnbull, Martin Parkinson frolic and were never really committed to it and definitely didn't want to do anything that would have impacted on their freedom to operate. Mm, well, yes. Quite. Now, I wanted to do a whole section on the economy, but my half-hour podcast has now crept up into 45 minutes. So I I really actually want to... So can we do it quickly? Mm -hmm. The economy. Now, again, going back to your farewell speech, you said some of the economics we need now is not in the textbooks, Mm -hmm. right? And you were talking about digital platform regulation and all that sort of stuff. I want to inject here briefly Larry Summers and the idea of secular stagnation and whether or not it's not a matter of the economics we need right now being in the textbooks, whether the model is broken, whether the whole model that we have been operating under for the last, well, you know, in the post-war period is now not delivering. Now, I put this to you as an eminent macroeconomist. Gee, it's a small question, isn't it? Well, the whole podcast is ridiculous, but yeah. can, you do, this, can yeah. you do this in a couple of minutes? So, so key, key issues. Everywhere you look around the world, productivity growth has slowed. And yet, at the same time, we're talking about rapid technological change. So something's going on here. And I think wherever you look, you can see policies that are throwing grit into the gears of the economy and slowing it down. So I actually don't think the model per se is broken. Mm. Because if you go back, you know, you, you talk about the model. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean the sort of approach that we've pursued fair of deregulation, yeah, deregulation yeah, and market yeah. incentives, which has only really been in its current form since – 1980s. Yes. Um, yes. You go back yeah. between 1980s and World War II, you had much, much more state different. intervention. No, absolutely. And, fair and we're, and we're fair moving. Rebuttal. We're moving into a point, uh, long cycles, political cycles, we're moving into a place where populism rules. And you can see that in the US and Britain. You can see it in places like Hungary and Poland. You can see at least in those latter two, it's actually right-wing authoritarian populism, which is a sort of an interesting mix. Or the, the It's the emergence of the illiberal democracy. Yes, yes, um, exactly. So everywhere there's, there's some phenomenon that's occurring in Western democracies that is leading to a deterioration in economic performance. The other thing, though, is I think there's a lot of confusion about what's going on. So if you look at the debate here in Australia... Some people seem to be talking about the challenges if it's um, 
simply a case of uh, stimulate demand and everything will be hunky-dory. Well, I think that's absolutely a complete misreading of the situation. I think we've got two phenomena interacting. One is we haven't had any real structural reform since basically the early part of the 2000s. Yep. So we've, you know, we, we are... We have come to the close to the end of the benefit of all that reform we did in the in the eighties. The second is inevitably, as we came off the the big terms of trade shock, the the mining boom. Even though iron ore prices are still higher than Treasury's been forecasting recently, we inevitably had to see a slowing in wage growth uh, because our living standards had to come back in line with productivity. Uh, what we've also seen, though, is a very sharp deterioration in productivity performance, mm. and that's been true even after you take account of the mining boom. Yeah. So every, you know, lots of people kept saying, "Oh, no, it'll all bounce back once the mining, once the the investment phase is over and we start exporting." Well, no, it hasn't, mm. and and it's not going to, because partly, if you think about it, where is job growth occurring? It's occurring in the, in the caring sectors, and they're characterised by low productivity yep. levels and low productivity growth rates, yep. hence low wage rates by comparison and low wage growth. Now, not saying that that's a, a socially acceptable outcome, I'm saying that's just how it is at yep. the moment. Yeah. So that means that productivity is going to, there's going to be a drag on productivity. So there's a real need in, in my view for a concerted program of structural reform. But over on top of that, there is a cyclical deficiency in aggregate demand. That is, a little bit of stimulus wouldn't go astray, but you're not going to stimulate the economy you're not back gonna, to three yeah. or four percent growth you're rates. You're not going to fix it. You're by, not going to fix it by, by 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 running smaller surpluses or you know tax cuts or or even infrastructure spend. Yeah. Even though all of these things are help at the margins, help at the margin. Yeah. You know, you you can you could actually do a lot more in the infrastructure space without actually spending much money. Because if you think about it, pricing of, of infrastructure appropriately, oh, I better, see. Regulatory, better road pricing, reg regulatory. better regulatory yeah. arrangements, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, or changes to land planning. I mean, land planning is a, is a, a huge free kick mm. if we could actually deal with it, but it's all in the hands of the states. Yes. And the states have no incentive to change. Mm. Well, you can see it's a whole podcast anyway. We did our best in about three minutes there. Final curly question before you go. Who was your favourite politician that you ever worked for? So I know it's like having favourite children, but come on. Uh, Paul Keating was absolutely mercurial. Penny Wong was great. Greg Combe was great. Uh, so that's on the, the Labor side. Uh, on the coalition side, I actually always liked John Howard. I think you know he he was uh, he had a vision about what he was trying to do, yeah. and he wanted to do it. Yeah. Joe Hockey was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I saw him in Washington recently. I think he's still fun. He's yes. still fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, look, there were, all these things are always invidious, but I, I've I've had the benefit of working with a range of politicians on. You know, from the coalition and from Labor, and I think you know, as I said before, 
almost everybody who enters politics is actually well motivated. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I think I agree we should never that. we should never lose sight. No, of no, that. no. You and I um, be in very firm agreement with yeah. that. What about? Oh, sorry, I, I didn't mention. I was um, going to say Peter Costello. Well, well, yes, Peter Costello, who mm. you know you did the GST with and other things, and and also, I mean, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull brought you back. So. Yeah, and and he brought me back, and and I think you know he, while we did good things, I think this will be looked upon as, uh, and this is not a reflection on Malcolm, but this will be looked upon as. We could have done a lot more, mm. but for the internal civil war. Yeah, exactly. So. Yes, I oh, will look on that happy note. <laughs> we will we will conclude our conversation for now. Thank you, as always, to uh, Hannah Izzard and to Miles Martignoni for Sterling Services to Production. Thank you, guys, too, for listening. This was this has been a long conversation, but it's been a one I've wanted to have for ages with Martin, and I think it's absolutely delivered in terms of frankness and insight and honesty. So thank you for that. We have one more episode coming uh, before everybody goes face first into their trifle or whatever they're going to do over the next couple of weeks. That's a political wrap uh, with my fantastic Canberra political team. We're just going to look back over the year and look forward into next year. And we're also going to uh, be a bit self-critical about what we've learned over the course of a year that was really challenging in, in reporting terms in a number of different ways. So... That one's coming up after this episode. Remember the usual drill, subscribe, share, tell your friends and uh, be safe and be merry and all that stuff. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.